Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. The rates of those being newly diagnosed with diabetes is climbing, while the age when they are is falling. What's to blame for this continued epidemic of sugar issues? How come we're seeing diabetes now in our youth? Are there things that can be done right now to reduce one's risk for developing diabetes? If you already have it, will you be stuck on pills forever? Dr. Osama Hamdi, author of a new book, Diabetes Breakthrough, is on the line, and we're going to talk with him about how to reverse the course of diabetes, lose weight, and reclaim health for anyone diagnosed with this disorder. His principles are based on scientific research done at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, an affiliate of Harvard Medical School. And then we're going to bring the recommendations home to the islands with Sally Bellas, certified diabetes educator and registered dietitian, and find out how to make your favorite local foods a bit healthier. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We have Dr. Hamdi on the line. Welcome to The Body Show. It is my pleasure. Happy to have you here. Now, you're calling in from the East Coast. I know that's six hours ahead, so sorry to keep you up so late. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write the book, The Diabetes Breakthrough. Uh, you know, we uh, the book is based on uh, a program at Jocelyn Diabetes Center called the Why Wait uh, Program. And we started Why Wait in uh, uh, 2005, so uh, almost nine years. And uh, the program had been extremely uh, successful in uh, helping patients with diabetes to lose weight. And many of them uh, cut their medication uh, significantly down, and some of them even stopped all uh, their medications. But as you know, the program had been uh, only available for people who are living in Boston or around the Boston area. And we thought that this is a time that we... um, uh, can have this program up for uh, everyone uh, in the U.S. and in Hawaii and uh, everywhere uh, who is interested to lose weight and reverse a course of uh, type 2 diabetes. Now, what do you think is leading to the increase in the number of people being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and also the younger age that we're seeing people? Is it lifestyle issues that people are just not aware of as much as they ought to be? Why are we seeing more and more people diagnosed with diabetes? You know, diabetes and uh, overweight and obesity are twins. And uh, in any nation, Uh, You see uh, body weight going up. You see the prevalence of diabetes uh, is going up uh, in the same manner and same time. Uh, And as you see, uh, over the last three or four decades, uh, the number of people who start to suffer from uh, overweight and obesity is is going significantly up. Uh, Currently, 75% uh, of the population are either overweight or obese. And that's why the prevalence of diabetes is going up. Uh, but you have to understand that diabetes only occurs in people who are genetically susceptible for the disease. So uh, if you have the genes and you gain weight, 
this is the uh, the reason why people get diabetes. So then, type two diabetes really there is a direct genetic condition uh, connection, and if you have family members who have been diagnosed with diabetes, if you gain weight, if you have issues with your lifestyle that put you at risk, you're more likely to get the type 2 diabetes that other folks in your family have. Uh, you are absolutely right. And the risk had been going significantly up uh, in younger generation. Uh, we have 16% of the U.S. population now uh, are obese, and among them, uh, around 25% uh, have what's called the pre-diabetes, so they are ready to develop diabetes. And among obese adolescents, uh, around 4% now have uh, type 2 diabetes. So this is uh, unexpected that uh, type 2 diabetes occur in children and adolescents. Well, and part of what made the, the program Why Wait so effective is, you know, I'm looking at the book that, that you wrote, and for those interested, it's available on Amazon, it's available at Barnes & Noble, and I checked, it's available at Alamoana Barnes & Noble, is that they said, you know, on average, there was about a 25-pound weight loss after 12 weeks. People had an 85% success rate sticking to their fitness plans, 21% success rate in those stopping insulin, the rest of them cut their doses, Annual savings, of course, in healthcare costs, but more more importantly, it really helped to almost reverse the course of diabetes in the folks who had gone through this particular program that you mentioned was first available in Boston. So, when you look at how well people did, were they able to maintain it? Was this was a twelve week program? From what you've seen, do you see these people years later and they're still doing some of the same great work and they're still maintaining their ability to take lower doses of medicines? Or do you kind of see after the 12 weeks that things go back to the way they were? Uh, That's a very good uh, point. We are uh, about to uh, publish uh, five years uh, follow-up of those people who did the Y weight uh, program. In reality, uh, the average weight loss after uh, five years is around 6.4%. So this is the longest uh, ever maintenance of weight loss. Uh, But the most important is that around 53% of the people who did the Y-weight maintained uh, the same weight loss. They are still around 9% weight loss after uh, five years. So uh, the program is not uh, short-term, it is uh, very long-term, and we have uh, now uh, seen this and we're about to publish that. So it sounds like not only is it this a 12-week program, this is really a 12-week jumpstart to a, to a lifestyle change that people make that you hope they continue with. You're, you are absolutely right. Uh, the book is the uh, introduction of people. Uh, to have a whole new lifestyle for the rest of their life. So we usually say that the first 12 weeks are just phase one, but the phase two is the rest of life. So now what's in the in the first two weeks? What's the basics of phase one? What are people doing? Are they just working on diet? Are they also working on exercise? Are they doing a combination of both? How would you describe phase one? Yeah, the Y-Weight program is a multidisciplinary program. It involves all the components of weight loss. Uh, 
dietary intervention, exercise intervention, uh, cognitive behavior uh, support, medication change, and education. So those are the major components of the program. And we believe the success of the program is uh, based on implementing all those interventions in the same time. Uh, so they are complementary to each other and help people uh, to lose a significant weight. But you have to remember that we have many innovations in the Y weight uh, program, from exercise to diet to behavior support to even the medication change. And this had all been explained in the diabetes uh, breakthrough. Now, when we talk about medications, you know, certainly we know that one of the ways to help control sugars is to work on lifestyle, diet, and exercise. And also, in some cases, people need to use medication. Now, one of the things that people often suggest is that they want to lower the dose of their medication. They want to get off of it. They want to be able to to not be dependent on taking pills or, in some cases, shots. In that sort of situation, is it... Is it that helpful to be on lower doses of medication, or is that really just a side effect benefit from making the lifestyle changes? Should the goal be to take less pills, or should it be to just keep your sugars down, and by the way, I don't need to take all these medications? Yeah, this is a fantastic uh, question. You know, I, uh, I and many uh, of my colleagues view diabetes uh, and the blood sugar as um, someone who has bacterial infection, uh, infection with bacteria and fever. The blood glucose is a fever, but the core of the problem is the weight. Uh, so y- you don't get that much benefit by just uh, treating the fever. You need to, t- to deal with the core problem. The core problem, uh, core problem in diabetes is the body weight. And I personally believe that if you get the weight uh, out of the door, diabetes will be out of the window. Uh, so the whole idea here is to treat diabetes from its core. And the end result is that the medication will automatically start to go down. So now when you talk about losing the weight, doing the exercise, is there any secret to staying motivated? I mean, a lot of folks say, hey, I'm going to do it. I'm going to work on this. They get to see a little bit of improvement. And then all of a sudden, holidays come or parties come. And boy, that cake or ice cream is calling them again. Maybe the rice or something else that they eat. How can you keep people motivated to stay on such a program? Is there some secret in the diabetes breakthrough that helps people to stay motivated and on target? You know, uh, uh, first, we usually tell people, if you make, uh, uh, um, you know, a wrong exit in your highway, you, you don't build the, your house in that wrong exit. You go back and uh, you return back to the highway and you continue. Uh, so we actually teach people a lot of cognitive uh, behavior uh, change. Uh, that actually deal with many of the problems, especially what's called the relapse. We call it relapse and collapse. <laughs> relapse but, uh, and collapse, I like that, okay. Relapse, uh, relapse, and collapse. And, you know, and we tell people, you know, uh, this is life. This is normal life. People can make mistakes, but it doesn't mean that uh, all the plan is, uh, is, the, is, is collapsed. You have to uh, get back and continue to do what you... Uh, you have been doing as long as you get very good uh, success results. And people with diabetes immediately see the success 
uh, when they check their blood sugar and see the blood sugar in, in good range. And uh, they see that when uh, they go out of the highway uh, in the wrong exit, the blood sugar is going up. Uh, so they learn quickly that uh, uh, good behavior and good exercise and good diet is uh, key uh, for long-term health. All right. They learn not to get off at that exit anymore. Okay. It sounds like a plan. Now, part of what you've done with the book is that you've made accessible to anybody, really, the program that used to be just exclusive to Jocelyn. And you've really opened this up for other people to participate. And there's a lot of centers who are kind of doing this, not necessarily as part of Jocelyn, but kind of the foundation of how they would address diabetes. And so certainly, if anybody out there has that condition, there's definitely, you've been motivating, there's there's a lot of help out there, and you don't have to feel like medication is your only route. There are some other lifestyle things you can do to help. Yeah, I, I would like to tell your audience uh, very clearly that diabetes um, is a reversible condition. People work... Uh, hard on uh, their weight in the very early stage of the disease, the chances for them to reverse the diabetes is significant. We have yeah. around 17% of uh, people who uh, did the program stopped all their medication and their uh, uh, blood glucose is back to the normal range. They don't have diabetes anymore. Uh, they are in remission from diabetes. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the rest had have cut their medication down by 50. Fantastic. Well, that's a good way to end it. Diabetes can be reversed if you work on lifestyle changes. I want to thank you for calling in from the East Coast to be part of the show today. Dr. Osama Hamdi is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and the medical director of the Obesity Clinical Program at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center. He is also a co-author of The Diabetes Breakthrough, which is based on a scientifically proven plan to lose weight and cut medications as part of the Jocelyn Diabetes Center. Thanking Dr. Hamdi for joining us and staying up late. And now we have Sally Bellez. She is a certified diabetes educator, registered dietitian, and a local expert in how to take some of the things that Dr. Hamdi mentioned and bring them on home. You know, often when I see people in the office, they always tell me, but I'm not eating foods that are too much. And, and even if my sugars are a little high, I don't think it's my diet. And yet sometimes we find out when we speak with someone like Sally that as much as we think we're eating healthy, well, maybe not as much. So I want to welcome you to the show. Sally, welcome back. This is our fourth time to have the pleasure of having you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here, Kathy. Now, some of the stuff that Dr. Hamdi said, diabetes can be reversible. True? Absolutely. Because if you make lifestyle changes, now the program says better health in 12 weeks, but really it's... Phase one in 12 weeks, continue this for the rest of your life. You know what I say? Good diabetes management is a lifestyle. And honestly, for a lot of other medical conditions, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, it really is about lifestyle. It isn't necessarily just a one-time thing. It's making changes that are kind of healthier to begin with no matter what. Absolutely. These are permanent changes that um, someone's going to maintain throughout their, their lifetime 
to stay healthy. I like the analogy of getting off at the wrong exit, because certainly I've done that a bunch of times. And you're right. You don't just decide, well, I'm not going to go where I was. I'm just going to take this exit and go to some other place. You know, certainly you get back on the highway or you find another route to get to your destination. So it sounds like you've read through the diabetes breakthrough. You had a chance to look at it. Is there a lot of new news? Is this a nice, compact way to to take a look at some of the stuff that you've been saying for quite a while? How? What was your impression? It's an excellent um, book that is very uh, comprehensive, and um, the program is uh, also comprehensive. And what this program stems from, as many other diabetes self-management programs out there in the nation, is from the National Diabetes Prevention Program trials, which was a nationwide study of persons um, at risk or with prediabetes looking at is diabetes preventable? And the National Diabetes Prevention Program study across the nation found just that. We had a study here in Honolulu under the direction of Dr. Richard Arakaki. And the program found that when we can get someone in the prediabetes phase, that diabetes is preventable. Once someone has diabetes, it's reversible. Um, we know that. And so that's already a fact. Absolutely. What does it take to to prevent it or to reverse it? I mean, is, you know, sometimes I wonder if someone has done the same thing for many years and they reach their age 40, 50, 60, and suddenly all of a sudden what they used to do seems to be associated with higher sugars. How do you reverse that? How do you get someone to the point where they're not going to have diabetes or they can reverse that train that seems to be heading directly into the diabetes station? Yeah, you know, um, like I said, good diabetes management is a lifestyle. But what I wanted to say also is it's a journey because good diabetes control is always a moving target. The reason diabetes is reversible is because it's progressive. So anything that progresses can be reversed. And so in terms of managing diabetes, it's always a moving target. It's about setting goals. It's about looking at um, what's working, what's not. And I always ask my patients, what's worked for you, what hasn't? Why did it work? Why did it not work? Because oftentimes the best solutions and answers come from the patients themselves in terms of what the best solution is. So give me an example. What's an example of somebody who said, this is what worked for me, this is what didn't? Um, for one example was a, a patient of mine that um, decided that they were just going to work on eating more vegetables. They weren't going to change anything else about their diet. They were just going to eat more vegetables. And they actually found that that worked for them because they ended up eating a little bit less rice, not intentionally at first, but they filled up on more vegetables. And the side benefit was that they lost weight along the way. And so instead of focusing on, I can't eat it, I can't eat it, oh my God, I love that rice, I want to eat it, it was, I'm going to focus on vegetables, and when I'm full, I will have less rice, or whatever their carbohydrate equivalent might have been. So it's kind of refocusing your, your attention. Yeah. All right. It sounds so simple. And we know, yet we know, it is not. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Sally Bellas. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what to do, what to do if you love Indian food or Japanese food or Korean food or Chinese food. How can you turn 
the diabetes recommendations into some local diet choices that make sense and that aren't that difficult to make. We'll be right back after this quick break. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Stay with us. Once upon a time, there was a city with a growing economy. And then... Everyone knows this is a ghost town, so our restaurant doesn't have to pay rent for three years. The government gave it to us for free. I'm Kai Rizdal. Tall buildings, big stadiums, and the Chinese GDP next time on Marketplace from APN. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. The Chris Vandercook Band salutes blues royalty, B.B. King, Albert King, and Freddie King in the Atherton on Saturday, June 14th at 7.30. The show, titled The Three Kings, will feature original hits and new horn arrangements inspired by these blues giants. For tickets, call 955-8821 during business hours or go online at hprtickets.org. Aloha and welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Sally Bellis. She is at Straub Clinic and Hospital. She's one of the certified diabetes educators, registered dietitian, and someone who can always help to motivate anybody to put the chocolate down and maybe pick up the carrot stick that we don't think we like as much as we should. Sally, I'm happy to have you here. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about diabetes being reversible. Would you ever use the word cure? I would never use the word cure because I think that if there was a cure for diabetes, we would not see the increasing epidemic that we're seeing. And as you mentioned earlier, we're seeing it in our children. So once you have either the genetic predisposition or you've developed that early stage diabetes, if you control it, reverse it, you have to continue with those changes. If you went back to doing what you were doing, you're going to wind up back in that diabetes range again. Because the genetic predisposition is always there. And so if there is that genetic predisposition and you look at your parents, you look at your brother, your sister, someone else and go, oh, they've got the diabetes, Unless you do something different than they do, you might get it. Right, and it really depends on what happens to turn that switch on or off. So if we're genetically predisposed to diabetes, the switch is off. But what's tr- what turns that switch on? Is it weight gain in our later years, um, age itself, something we're doing differently, stress in our life, um, a certain medication? So there's a lot of things that come into play in terms of um, environmentally from the outside. So it could be, you know, you mentioned that maybe you get older. I see a lot of people who are told you're borderline diabetic and they're in their 70s and 80s. And I'm thinking, boy, if you're 85 and you're getting borderline diabetes, how much can you really change your lifestyle or your eating habits? At certain points, is it really just a matter of the aging process? The pancreas can't keep up? Yes. And if that's the case, what do you do? Because diabetes is progressive. So as we age, we lose our ability to make enough insulin and we u- lose our ability to use insulin well. We, u- we lose lean body mass as we age. So muscle is metabolically active tissue. And as we lose muscle as we age, we therefore 
lose our ability to use insulin well. So it is part of the aging process. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to get diabetes. Um, And by the way, not everyone that's overweight or obese will get diabetes. So really, there's that genetic switch, Mm -hmm. and there may be something going on metabolically in the body with the muscles, with the utilization of the sugar that you eat, and also with the aging process. So... Mm -hmm. I mean, some people can be really overweight and never have diabetes, and then there's skinny people with diabetes. I've seen that, too. I've seen um, a patient of mine that has no family history, um, active, um, very athletic, never been, never had a weight problem, um, eats very healthy, um, and diabetes. Diabetes. Now, we're specifically talking type 2. Yes, we are. So we're not necessarily referring to type 1. That's the type of diabetes you are diagnosed with when you're relatively young. You just don't make any insulin. You are, by definition, insulin dependent because type 1 is a different process. So we're specifically focusing on our type 2 today. But, you know, you can get that and you may not have any rhyme or reason as to why it happened. And yet, if you have it, there's some things that you need to do. Mm-hmm. And I like what um, uh, Dr. Hamby said because, um, in a sense, um, obesity and diabetes are twins. But again, not everyone that's overweight or obese is going to. They can be get fraternal twins. Diabetes. They won't be identical. Right. They'll right. be fraternal, They're fraternal okay. twins. Right. Um, but with that said, as we age or if we're less active, so physical inactivity plays a role as well, or as we maybe put on weight over the years, that interferes with our body's ability to use insulin well. And that's what we call insulin resistance. And that's the very earliest stage of prediabetes that predisposes someone to then develop the diabetes. Develop type 2. All right. We've got Rick on the line from California listening online. Rick, welcome to The Body yes. Show. What can we do for you today? Yes, um, I suffer from a neurological disorder that um, causes um, um, hypothalamic dysfunction of the hypothalamus and dysfunction of the pituitary, as I told you when uh, you had the eye doctor on the phone about a year ago, and um, that has caused me to have... Uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes. And I just want to be, uh, I just wanted to say that no matter what approach we take to manage our diabetes and lose weight, that we have to be really careful that it's not a one size fits all approach. I'll give you a quick example. My problem is not a specific food. My problem is, uh, well, my problem is twofold. One, the disorder I have, which is called septo optic dysplasia or demorgia syndrome, um, has historically been known to cause hypoglycemia, and two, uh, my problem is appetite. What's the best way of controlling your appetite other than drinking water? Some say to eat six times, six small quantities of food a day, but more frequently throughout the day. Others just say eat three square meals a day and then have a protein snack at bedtime. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question, Rick, and you brought up a very good point, which is the fact that diabetes in certain select situations 
can be related to some other medical problems that someone is experiencing. And in your situation, because of the hypothalamus and pituitary issues, it can cause you to have troubles with weight gain and thus lead to diabetes. So in your case, it's not as direct. And the good news is that even looking at the Diabetes Breakthrough book, it's very individualized. You know, somebody once told me that one size fits all kind of means that, you know, it doesn't fit anybody correctly. And so you're absolutely right that you have a very specific sort of a problem. Now, you also asked a really good question, which is something that applies to not just yourself, but a lot of folks. How do you control appetite? And if you're hungry and you haven't had enough food, you're going to wind up reaching for the first thing that's around you because you're so hungry. So what do you do to control that? I'm sorry? Regardless of what it is. Right, and that's the hard part is that, you know, somebody once told me if you're hungry, then you get angry. So you get like hangry. You know, you wind up saying, where's the food? I've got to get it. I've got to get it now. And if you don't get it, then you start developing physical symptoms, headaches, and you get lightheaded. And in your case, because of the hormonal imbalances, you might have low sugar. So, you know, it's a great question. How do you control the appetite and which is better six small meals, three meals, and protein shakes for anybody, not just someone unfortunately suffering with the disorder that you do, but for all of us. What can we do to control appetite? You're kind of making me hungry now. It is dinner time. (laughs) So, all right, Sally, what can I do? I'm hungry. I'm angry. I'm hangry. Rick's the same way. What do we do? The best appetite suppressant I know is to include protein in the meal and the snack along with dietary fiber. So protein and fiber. Protein and fiber. Give me an example. What has protein and fiber? Um, For a meal, protein could be lean chicken breast or some salmon. For a snack, protein could be a handful of nuts or it could be some peanut butter. But protein and fiber take longer to digest. So they help us feel fuller longer and more satisfied. So it can help manage appetite. And that's good for weight management no matter what the issue is that is causing the weight gain, whether it's hypothyroid. And um, to your point, um, it's very important to understand that there's a lot of things that can cause diabetes. So if someone has pancreatic cancer and they have resection, they can then become type 2 diabetic or have type 2 diabetes as a result of having cancer of the pancreas and having some of their pancreas removed. So it's really the the pancreas that produces insulin. If something insults the pancreas, and you don't produce the insulin, then you can develop the diabetes. And that may not be what you think. It may not be that you have too much body weight. It could be pancreatic cancer. It could be chronic pancreatitis. Anything that challenges the pancreas and the pancreas saying, no more, I'm quitting, that can cause it. Right. Now, you mentioned nuts can give me my protein. Where's my fiber coming from? You know, nuts have some fiber, but in terms of the snack, someone could have some nuts with maybe some dried fruit. And that could offer fiber. It could be some dried cranberries or dried cherries. Um, and that has to be portioned for someone living with diabetes, absolutely. But it can be a nice high-fiber, um, high-protein snack. So what about like meals? peanut butter on a <laughs> celery stick? Is that good? Yeah. Could that, be. That would be a way to do it. Um, for a meal, it could be the beautiful grilled salmon with maybe some broccoli and a little bit of quinoa whole grain for fiber. Now, you mentioned whole grain as opposed to other types of grains. Mm -hmm. What am I looking for? So if I want to monitor carbohydrate intake and not have too much, is there a number 
for people who have diabetes? Is it, you know, sometimes they say protein, one gram per kilogram is how much you need in a day. Is there anything like that for for carbohydrates, any kind of general guideline? Well, you you don't want to go under 130 grams of carbohydrate a day because carbohydrates, that's our fuel. So you need some fuel. You got to right, get going. Okay. Right. So you don't want to eliminate carbohydrates or um, reduce it or restrict too much. But generally, for most persons living with diabetes, anywhere from 30 to 45, maybe 50 grams a day um, is adequate. So they don't get 130. They get like they 40 or 50. Out. So the the total amount of carbohydrate for the day would be split between three meals and however many snacks. Or if someone wants to eat smaller, more frequent meals, they just distribute their total amount of carbohydrate over those five or six smaller meals. So if, if you're diabetic, you do 50 grams total, and you divide that through your meals. Well, the 50 grams would be, that would be per meal. Oh, per meal. Okay. Right. So you'd be hitting 130 or so if you're doing three meals, if you're doing less than that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. If you're doing more than that, then, so you divide 130 by number of meals. That's right. Approximately. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what you're looking at. You said quinoa and, or whole grains. So how much better is that than if you were to go white rice? I mean, is there, what's the difference? The difference is the fiber. So the fiber is indigestible. Fiber, by the way, is a carbohydrate, but your body doesn't absorb it or obtain calories or energy from it. So it doesn't contribute to your glucose or your blood sugar after a meal. So you want to choose whole grains or foods higher in fiber, three to five grams per serving, to get that amount of fiber that can help you manage your post-meal blood sugars and your appetite. So the fiber makes you feel full, and it makes your body absorb the food you're eating a little bit slower as far as the carbohydrates, so that a little bit lasts a lot longer for you. And it helps manage your blood sugars from going too high after a meal. And also, you won't be constipated. Exactly. Another bonus. Right. So, I mean, fiber is important for persons living with diabetes because it will help them manage their sugars, whereas... White rice is refined and processed and polished. So those starches will turn to sugar or glucose much more quickly than a whole grain food like brown rice or quinoa or black rice. So it's sort of, there's such a thing as black rice. Wild rice. Black rice. Wild rice. Boy, okay. So, so what you want to do is make your body work for it. And so if you have to work to digest the fiber, then it's not going to shoot up the sugar into your bloodstream immediately. That's kind of referring to something they call a glycemic index. How quickly does your body suck up all those calories? And if it's white rice, it's pretty darn quick. And if it's brown rice or quinoa, it takes a little longer. So to um, explain to our listeners, the glycemic index represents how fast a food, a particular food, will raise your blood sugar after eating it. And so you want low glycemic index foods. Right. And foods are measured against sugar, which is given a score of 100. So what would be an example of something that would have a lower glycemic index that's still in the carbohydrate family? Like you mentioned quinoa. Mm -hmm. Starchy beans. Um, or sweet potatoes. That's what I'm wondering is, you mm-hmm. know, everybody thinks, and they actually taste really sweet and yummy, but sweet potatoes are actually better than white potatoes if you're dealing with some issues with diabetes or any reason that you're keeping in control of your carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
Now, let's talk about some ethnic foods because, you know, I love certain types of different foods. I mean, take me to a Thai restaurant any night. I'm so there. You know, Indian food, love it. I never realized I liked Indian food until I went to India and I got really hungry. And it was at that point that I realized how good the food really was, much to the dismay of my medical school roommates, who then therefore had none of their food from home ever in the fridge. But let's say I'm going to an Indian restaurant, for example. What can I look at to eat that will not be as heavily laden with those high glycemic index carbohydrates? I mean, what can you eat there? Yes. And I want to just note this, that Whenever we eat out, no matter where we go, it's always good if the menu's available online to go ahead and look at it before going to the restaurant and kind of figure out what those healthy choices are and what you'd like to order. So you kind of have a plan before you go to the restaurant. And like you're super hungry. So you right. have to know what you're going to get before you go crazy. Right. Okay. So what am I getting if I'm going to an Indian restaurant? What am I getting that's healthy for me? Generally, you want to watch for um, some of the curries if they're very rich. Um, you want to choose things that have lighter Indian-type sauces, um, things that are um, not cooked and fried or breaded, and okay. things that have dishes that include a lot of vegetables um, and limited amounts of starch in them. So what about non-bread? So that is something that you could certainly have at the Indian restaurant, but you would want to watch the amounts that you're eating because that's going to have to count as part of the meal plan or your meal. So you don't want to go crazy on the non. No. Because although you love it, you got to watch out for that. Now, right. sometimes people will say, would you like white rice or jasmine rice or what's the difference? Is it all just white rice? Yes. It's in terms of, in terms of carbohydrate, they're, they're equivalent. And so if you were to really want to be good about it, you'd ask for brown rice. To get the fiber. To get your fiber. Because a lot of places have it available. I mean, they'll often say white rice or brown rice, and, mm -hmm. and they give you that option. And it's nice because, you know, in other countries, there, there's no option. There's just rice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you go to places here, they do give you the option. Now, what if I'm going for Thai food? It's one of my other favorite cuisines. If I'm going to get food at a Thai restaurant, and I'm trying to watch carbohydrates, what am I doing? What am I getting? So same basic rule. Avoid anything on the menu that has um, breading or is deep fried or has a lot of starch. So you might want to choose a Thai noodle dish that has a lot more vegetables in it and choose dishes that have lean meats. So something with chicken or fish in it um, or looking that the beef is lean. Or you could just go tofu. Mm -hmm. I and, mean, you could also go vegetarian yeah. on all these things as well. Sure. And you want to choose the summer rolls, which are, you know, either wrapped and steamed rather than deep fried. So there's definitely some options. Mm -hmm. What about everybody likes to go get Vietnamese? I don't know if they call it pho or fur. I don't really know how to pronounce it. But, you know, the Vietnamese soup. Pho. <laughs> that one? That Here you go. Good, bad, don't eat all the noodles, enjoy yourself, drink all the liquid. What am I doing? There are a lot of noodles in the serving of pho at most of those restaurants. So um, load up on the vegetables. Oftentimes they'll give you the vegetables on the side, the, the Thai basil um, and, and the bean sprouts, and go ahead and load those in and try to eat most of those and leave, leave some of the noodles. And then, you know, of course, if you're also watching your blood pressure, watch the broth. But always try to fill up on the vegetables. So I like to paint a picture 
of a plate that's about nine inches. So your picnic or paper plate size plate. And think about having at least a third to half of your plate all vegetables of the watery type. And then think of the other half of your plate divided up so that you have a quarter to a third of your plate lean protein and then the other quarter or a third of the plate reserved for your whole grains. And then try to order dishes that kind of either combine that or come that way. Or you could go family style and just fill your plate with those things. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is when we eat out, portion control across the board in terms of whatever we decide to eat. Because even though we know carbohydrates affect diabetes the most in terms of blood sugar, food eaten in large amounts will also cause a high blood sugar if if so, you know, no matter what you eat, sure. Mm-hmm. If you're going and saying, oh, this is a normal portion, it's for one, and it looks like you could eat it over mm-hmm. three days, it's probably not just meant for that one mm-hmm. meal. But anything plant-based, so focused on menu choices that have a lot of vegetables and lean protein in them, and then go ahead and enjoy um, a dish that might be whole grain. Maybe something's made with whole wheat pasta, or in the case of Japanese food, choose something made with the soba or the buckwheat noodle for a little more fiber rather than um, somen noodles. Ooh, lots of good information. Bad that we're talking about it during dinner time because now I'm just hungry. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Sally Bellas. She is a certified diabetes educator and expert dietitian and nutritionist, and she is making local cuisine sound good but also a little healthier than it was. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. On the next Humankind. I see a, a moral core or moral compass developing over many years. I don't think it's something that naturally emerges. I think it's something that adults have to be very intentional about cultivating. How to Nurture the Moral Development of Children. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. Try, when crafting my new identity, to imagine what the first letter might look like emblazoned on a leotard. Rebranding a superhero. This week on Selected Shorts from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Sally Bellas. She is a nutritionist and certified diabetes educator at Straub Clinic and Hospital. We're talking about local foods. Before the break, I was just getting hungry with all the different types of delicious ethnic cuisines we have here in the islands. What makes sense if you have diabetes or are trying to limit your carbohydrate intake? And what can you order that's healthier for you? talked about a couple of different cuisine options. If you have some suggestions or if you'd like to know something about how to manage diabetes, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We've got a caller on the line. We have Kay from Kaneohe. Kay, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Thank you. This is a very helpful and informative show, and I really appreciate it. I was recently diagnosed as borderline pre-diabetic, 
and it was quite a surprise because there's no history of diabetes in my family. I am a runner. I am a vegetarian, so I'm eating well. I'm exercising, and no family history, and yet uh, I am borderline pre-diabetic. So, of course, I've, I've been trying to change my diet, but I wondered what could cause uh, this in person like myself. It's a great question, Kay. Do you mind me asking, how old are you? I'm 71. I think we can almost blame age. Sally, what do you think? I mean, vegetarian, runner, exerciser, poor Kay. Mm -hmm. You know, she gets to 71. Congratulations. I hope you live to 101. This isn't fair. It isn't. And the thing is, you've probably maintained a lot more lean body mass um, at that age than a lot of your peers, Kay. But we do lose, lose lean body body mass, even though we're very active, but you've helped to minimize it. Um, and you probably staved off the, the pre-diabetes. Um, so the good news is that you've been healthy all your life, and um, it, it comes a little late, but um, perhaps with your lifestyle, you've been able to put it off a lot longer. Mm-hmm. I just wonder, it was such a surprise, as I said, because there's no diabetes in my family. And so I, I did ob- observe after doing some research online, I did notice I thought I was safe on calories by being a vegetarian, not having fatty meat, not eating processed foods. I thought I was safe on calories, so I, do in- I did indulge my love of good breads and, and quality sweet rolls, things like that. And uh, in uh, looking at the recommendations for pre-diabetes, I I suddenly realized that at every sitting, I was having perhaps two servings of uh, carbohydrate instead of one. For example, I would have a roll, a muffin, and a croissant. I would have a sandwich and a half. I would have... uh, maybe two English muffins instead of one, maybe two pieces of pita bread. And I noticed that uh, I was indulging my love for these carbohydrates because I thought I was safe on calories, and I had no idea about the sugars. And I think that that was the problem. So I've uh, stopped that. I'm cutting back on those things that I love so much and continuing to eat a lot of vegetables. Great. So you bring up a good point, Kay, that being a vegetarian doesn't mean you won't get diabetes. And by the way, a vegetarian diet is mainly carbohydrate. Yes. And because carbohydrate affects blood sugars the most, um, it's, it's not that hard on a pure vegan diet to really get in a lot of carbs. Yeah. Now, your focus is going to be on the quality of the carbs you choose here on out, um, more high-fiber carbs, uh-huh. and, and learning to, to count them and look at your servings that you're having each meal. Mm-hmm. So when you say you have two English muffins, do you mean both halves or two English muffins Four halves. I actually have two whole English muffins, and I recently noticed that the package says 
that a serving is one half of an English Right, muffin. so that's four <laughs> servings of carbohydrate you had, not yes, two. Uh, oh, my gosh, how can anyone be satisfied with a half of an <laughs> English muffin? Right, <laughs> so maybe you want to put some peanut butter, always add protein with mm-hmm. your with your meal, um, and add that to, to add for satiety and, and pleasure okay. and, and feeling fullness. How can I learn to count those carbohydrates, as you suggested? Yes, the American Diabetes Association has a website, mm-hmm. and you can just type in diabetes.org in your search engine, and you can just go to the website, type in their search, carbohydrate counting, and they have some good basic information there for you. We also have a comprehensive diabetes self-management program at Straub. Mm -hmm. And if you're interested, you can talk to your doctor about a referral. And you can reach our health management department at 522-4325. All right. Well, thank you very much. This is a very helpful program. Thank you so much. Good luck, Kay. Thank you. Thanks for calling us, Kay. And, you know, you bring up a really good point, which is you never really know how much extra you might be having until it gets flagged. So, you know, poor Kay, she might have actually had this at 51 if she wasn't so good with exercise and she wasn't so good with monitoring herself and keeping active that she probably staved this off for like a good 20 years. So now you look at it and go, boy, but I've done this my whole life. How could it catch up with me now? And it kind of brings up an interesting point. One of the most effective ways to know if what you're eating is is a bit of a problem is, you know, keep a food diary. I'm sure that you hear this again and again. When you tell people, write down everything you eat, they'll be surprised at how much by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And we talked about earlier, what what motivates a person to continue to keep successful at not just weight loss, but once they reach their goal, managing it? And the key is monitoring, and that's what they found with the Diabetes Prevention Program. And similarly, um, Dr. Hamdi found that with their program in the Diabetes Breakthrough is that monitoring oneself keeps one accountable. And so sometimes we really don't think we're eating as much as we are or snacking as much as we are or eating certain foods as much as we do, and it really does help to monitor oneself, whether that's monitoring your blood sugars at home or keeping a food diary or a exercise journal. So you really, you know, once you put it in writing, mm-hmm. it's often like, I've got to look at that and go exercise. Nope, none for Monday, none for Tuesday. You know, if you go through a whole week like that, you realize that there's there's a bigger problem. Are there any people out there who like eat whatever they want, sit on the couch, never exercise, and never have a problem? Who are they? And I don't want to meet them. There are people like that out there. They're not my friends. All right. So what are some of the other things? Let's talk a little bit about Korean food, plate lunch. If I'm going to these places, you know, what am I choosing and and how can I feel satisfied and feel like I've gotten a good amount of of nutritious food if I'm going to have a plate lunch, for example, or I'm going to a Korean barbecue place? What what can I eat? So again, you want to picture that nine-inch plate. I'm picturing it, but I'm picturing not the healthy stuff. Picturing mostly vegetables of the watery type lean protein, and some healthy carbohydrate, hopefully high in fiber. So at a Korean restaurant, you want to choose chicken. The beef is not very lean, but maybe the grilled Korean chicken. 
and choosing sides like bean sprouts or the cabbage instead of the potato salad or the macaroni salad or the potatoes. And then asking for brown rice, which a lot of the Korean restaurants do do offer. And what about plate lunch? Uh, same thing. A lot of times you can substitute tossed salad or some other cooked vegetable, watery type. Now you keep the- saying watery type. What do you mean exactly? I mean, watery type. Is broccoli watery type? Is that not? What do you mean by watery type? What I mean by watery type, Kathy, is a non-starchy vegetable. So starchy vegetables are going to be your potatoes, your corn, your peas, your kabocha. So non-starchy vegetables are watery vegetables. As a general rule, they're vegetables that shrink when you cook them. Okay. So think about mushrooms, bell peppers, onions, broccoli. So that's interesting. They shrink when you cook them. Generally so speaking. Generally maybe. speaking. So broccoli would have been included. Cauliflower mm-hmm. would be included. What's You mentioned a couple of the non-starchy vegetables. You mentioned potatoes. Now sweet potato, a little different. Starchy, but a little better for you. Right. So any, any starch, whether it's a grain or something like a potato, if it has more fiber... That's the carb of choice. So there's no bad carbs, but there are carbs that are more helpful in terms of managing your diabetes. And that would be something with more fiber like a sweet potato rather than mashed potato or french fries or brown rice or quinoa rather than white rice, whole wheat pasta rather than white pasta. And kind of some of the things that you're mentioning, you don't have to be diabetic to follow some of these. I mean, this is general, healthy, good dietary advice. So even if you don't have diabetes or you don't have prediabetes, these are the sorts of things that you really should look for regardless. You should be searching for more vegetables in your diet. You should be careful with types of lean meats. You should be monitoring. So you never wind up at 71 like poor Kay finding out, oh, wow, all these things I did weren't so good for me. But at least, you know, she got away with them for mm-hmm. quite a few years. So it sounds like these are all good, healthy things to do anyway. Now, we've got to talk dessert, right? So you're you're there you're out, you're celebrating, you want a little dessert. Can you have some? I mean, should you just like have a little bite? Should everybody at the table share one dessert? How do you address the dessert issue if you're going out and about and and eating out or even at at a party, graduation party, you know, 4th of July, Memorial Day, what do I eat? Uh, The best choices are always lighter fare, such as something that contains fruit. So a dessert that contains some fresh fruit, uh, maybe some yogurt. So those would be good. Now, if you're a chocolate lover. Or dark chocolate. You got to go dark. Better for you than milk chocolate? It is. It doesn't have all the milk fat solids, so the extra saturated fat. And you're looking for at least 70 to 80% cacao in the dark chocolate. And you get all those protective antioxidants, phytochemicals. You can convince yourself it's healthy. It's not hard to do with dark chocolate. All right. So that's good. Now, are there are there things that you could eat for dessert that are like, you know, you're going down if you eat that? I mean, if you know you're supposed to be watching carbohydrates, could you blow it all if you just ate one cheesecake? I mean, one slice of cheesecake. No, not at all. It really comes down to portion. So there's a myth I'm going to bust that um, might be surprising for some people, but people with diabetes can have sugar, but they really do need to understand how much they can have and what types of foods contain them and what's better for them. 
And so if someone's going to a wedding and they're going to have a small little piece of wedding cake or a little slice of cheesecake, that's not going to do them in. You know, it's not going to be something that's the end of it for them. Now, what if you have dessert and you have your whole slice? Is it a good idea to go walking afterwards? I mean, a lot of people, you know, they hear that you should go walking after dinner or don't eat and then go lay down. How effective is exercise at helping to mitigate some of the dietary influences when you're trying to keep an eye on your blood sugar? Exercise is so important. It is key not just to preventing diabetes, but once someone is diagnosed with diabetes in managing it. Exercise helps anyone use insulin better, whether we have diabetes or not. It opens the gates to our cells that allow our body, our muscles, to use the sugar for energy and burn it off. So exercising after a meal, whether it's your regular healthy meal or a larger meal, is a very good idea. So what kind of exercise? I mean, it could it just be a walk around the park? Could it be a walk down the street? Does it have to be something rigorous? You know what? It doesn't have to. And that's what they found in the Diabetes Prevention Program. And also, um, Dr. Hamdi has shown that with their program, that little changes make a big difference. So even if someone's starting off with just a 10-minute walk and they're trying that three times a week, that's going to really help them mobilize those sugars in their muscles and burn it off and help lower their blood sugar. And if during the day at work, they go up and down the stairs a bit, even if they just say, I'm going to go up and down the stairs at my office for 10 or 15 minutes, that's also another way to find that time within your day. You don't even have to leave your building if you can't. I mean, hopefully you can enjoy the fresh air, but there's ways to make it work. Right. So... If somebody is concerned that they've been diagnosed, as some of our callers have been, with prediabetes, how often does that progress to diabetes? Do we have any percentages, or is it really just based on the effort of the person involved? There actually are numbers. I've seen anything from 40 to 60% of persons with prediabetes will go on um, within five years if they don't make changes to develop type 2 diabetes. So we have numbers from the Centers for Disease Control on that. So like half of the people. It's pretty high. About About half of those folks. And if you've been diagnosed. If they don't make changes. Okay. But if you make changes, we mentioned reversible, preventable. Yes. But you have to keep doing those changes. It's a lifestyle and it's a journey that um, one continues. Well, and that's an important thing is that, you know, once you get to your goal, it's not like all of a sudden you just let it all go. You sort of find a way to make that realistic and continue for you. And I think that's the key for for any of us, Manning, whether we have diabetes or any other chronic condition, is to, to make those changes and adopt them as a lifestyle change. But remember to not rest on our laurels because it really is about continuing those behaviors and healthy lifestyle changes the person has made. Um, But more than that, finding ways to stay excited and motivated about these changes and changing it up, making it interesting all the time so you continue doing this good work. And you feel better too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you actually get things under better control, sugars or otherwise, you have more energy, you feel better. And you get off medications or reduce the need for some of them. 
Well, and that's excellent motivation in and of itself. So certainly I appreciate you coming back to join us, Sally, and telling us more. If people want to speak with you, they can always get referred to the Health Education Department. We mentioned the phone number is 522-4325, and you don't have to have diabetes to be to be sent there. Not at all. We um, we can see patients or persons that have prediabetes, diabetes, but... All right, that's the number to call. If you want to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you right here next week on The Body Show. Mm-hmm.